You're listening to High Control, a podcast about identifying, leaving, and recovering from high control, high demand groups, also known as cults. We're not experts, but we do know what it's like to be a part of and then leave a cult. Your high control journey starts now. Welcome to the High Control Podcast. I am your host for this episode, Allie Henney, and I am here with my friend Scott Lloyd, and we're going to talk about high demand, high control religious groups, what a lot of us know just as, as cults, but there's another name for it. Um, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk. This is a grand experiment. You are on the grant. You are on the ground floor of this. This is our first episode. Um, we don't purport to be experts. We're experts on our own experience, and we're experts actually in completely you know different fields in some ways. I guess related, related, but but different, but different fields. But this is just this is something um, that we've been wanting to do a podcast together for a while. And so this is kind of birthed out of a common experience. I've I've known Scott now um you can you believe it's been almost 15 years since we've met wow that's amazing yeah yeah so uh, you'll hear more from scott here in a minute but this is a grand experiment um that you're part of and so scott and i we have we never attended church together um but we have an overlap in our religious background and so we kind of have a common vernacular and, and experience um around this one particular religious group that we that we will definitely say more about but before we get to that i guess i should let scott introduce himself so scott how you doing how you feeling I'm good, Allie. Thank you. It is a, a privilege to be with you again, and uh, I consider you a very good friend, and uh, it's it's unfortunate that uh, we get together around uh, collective misery in our memories, but <laughs> yeah, it will be a fun conversation, and I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this because it's, it's really important. Yeah, you know, like yeah, we we this is like like take two of this. What Scott was saying, you know, like we 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 are good friends, we're close friends, you know, best friends. We talk we talk frequently, and everything. It is so funny because a lot of our friendship. I think we've only really been in person with each other once um, at a yeah. youth camp, um, and that was all, at a distance. You were you were holding a microphone and you were speaking into it, and you had something nice to say about the group that I was with, and. We were we were across the building from each other. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it was. I remember that you spoke at that camp too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so it was even at a distance, but then we just like you know friended each other on Facebook and have just have <laughs> been in one one another's lives since. And so that has um, that's you know, that's been a thing. So the title of this episode is "Was I in a Cult?" And this is something, Scott, that I have been asking myself um, for many years now, um, because for myself, I was part of, and this is kind of where our commonality, we didn't meet in the UPC, we met at, at, as a part of a group that was doing a youth camp that were all ex-United Pentecostal Church people. So that's, so we met whenever we were both out of the United Pentecostal Church, um, but I was in the United Pentecostal Church um, for about five years. And then um, kind of within that and then after 
um, I was connected with a group of people that we'll just, we'll call it the wall. Um, I was connected with a group of people that was like a praying group or whatever. And um, the leader of that, it kind of ended up becoming kind of culty a little bit. And then um, after my experience in the UPC and then somewhat concurrent with, and then after my experience at the wall, um, I was at this place that we'll call the furnace and um, I was there for five years and that was connected with the um, larger kind of charismatic prayer movement, which is like, you know, the International House of Prayer, Kansas City. And then there's just like a whole kind of movement and stuff around there. And um, there were some things about that that definitely were culty. And so I have been asking myself this for the past like 10 years. Um, I was also in an abusive church after that. Um, the church that was United Pentecostal left the United Pentecostal church and then became just a church, a non-denominational church that was still um, kind of abusive. And I ended up being back in that scenario again. And so anyway, all that to say that I've been asking myself this question. And I'm hoping that um, this episode, I'm hoping that some of your thoughts and insights, even in this episode, um, will help me, but perhaps might even help others um, be able to relate to or maybe come to terms with whether they were whether or not they were in a cult. Um, so yeah, so what, what do you got to say? You know, about that's that? um, that's something that I've asked myself as well. Growing up in the United Pentecostal Church, and what's amazing, you mentioned the United Pentecostal Church, the UPC. And for a long time, I knew that it qualified uh, as a cult under a strict definition because one of the tenets of its doctrine is a rejection of the Trinity. So that alone, especially from other Christian groups, qualified them um, as a cult. But that was something that when you were in the UPC, that was like, well, you know, that's... um, that's just another perspective on on the Godhead. And in retrospect, that was one of the least damaging of the uh, things that we believed and practiced as far <laughs> as inflicting real harm on individuals. But, but looking back, um, I think there was something in me that knew for a long time, yeah, this is a cult. Um, but you, like me, like probably some of our listeners, uh, have so many relational um, uh entanglements with with churches and groups. We have friends, we have family, uh, at least I do, that that still remain a part of the United Pentecostal Church. And I invested half of my life, literally, wow. in that That's group. Wild. And um, so it was very difficult to look back on your life and say, yeah, I, I was part of a cult. Yeah, you know, there is so much that could be said about that. And, you know, this, and I, I, maybe this will be a future episode, but the thing about um, the, even the UPC's like rejection, quote unquote, of the Trinity is that they really don't deny the Trinity. It's really like, it, it, like they do and they don't like, it's like, I'm not going to try to get very technical into this for people who like, you know, are like, I'm not a theologian. Um, but the, but the very basic of it is that like the Trinity is like this very basic doctrine in Christianity, this very basic idea that like you have the father, the son and the Holy spirit. And those three, you know, it's three in one. It's, it's, you know, it's the, it's God is made up of these three persons. And that's just kind of, and it's something that it's like a mystery 
a lot of Christians, you know, there, there's a doctrine of it. People understand it. There's a lot that you can, that you can get into with it. Um, but it's one of those things that a lot of Christians hold as, well, this is a mystery. And so with the UPC is sort of like, they're like, oh, you know, it's not a mystery. We've got it all figured out. So, you know, the, the right. Trinity, there's not, there's not a Trinity, you know, there's, there's the father, son, and Holy spirit. Well, all of that is Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. which there's so much that we could get into with that. But ultimately, like the, the thing that this is something that kind of grinds my gears a little bit about the UPC, honestly, is that the doctrine, and, I'm, and this isn't going to, this podcast isn't going to be about UPC doctrine, but it's just something that I, that I want to say because I think it's important to understanding cults, that, that the whole Jesus, the whole oneness doctrine, it was there to prop up a baptismal formula. It was there because people were like, oh, you know, we think that people should be baptized instead of saying in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the way that um, that a lot of Christians practice this, we think that it should just be done in the name of Jesus. You know, I baptize you in Jesus' name, the end. And so they got a lot of pushback for that. And so they needed a way to like, you know, say, okay, they needed a way to justify it. So they created this whole doctrine in order to justify this one point because they be- they believe that in-, in order to be saved, you have to be baptized, but not just any old way. You've got to be immersed in water in Jesus' name. So, you know, forget all of the Christians throughout history who either A, weren't baptized by immersion or B, weren't baptized in Jesus' name. Apparently God is going to throw all those people away. He's going to, he's going to put them in hell because they, right. because they didn't, because they didn't get baptized in Jesus' name because they didn't speak in tongues. They're going to go to hell. Um, but I say that to make a broader point about cults, that there's a lot of things that like cults believe that like whenever you get down to like the things that people, you know, are willing to even die over, it's like there, it's, it's to prop up an idea that like really isn't even that good of an idea or not that like good of an idea that's that's necessarily um, worth worth dying for. And I guess, you know, maybe you could say that about all religions. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, and in the UPC, the the idea of being baptized in Jesus' name, right? Not only did they discount 2,000 years of church history and tradition and doctrine, uh, but everybody else in the world had it wrong. Uh, The United Pentecostal Church has as its motto uh, the whole gospel to the whole world, which indicates that everyone else only has the gospel in part. So if the person putting you under the water stuttered, then it did not count. Uh, it did not count for salvation. And you're exactly right. Um, these um, ideas about uh, particular doctrines or perspectives on the Bible um, are adopted. Uh, and over time, they become a central part of the group's identity. And therefore, it must be perpetuated. It must be defended at all costs, because if that one aspect of the identity fails, then the entire house of cards comes tumbling down. Oh, wow. That is. And again, you know, like we're we're speaking right now very specifically about the United Pentecostal Church. But this is true of all of these cultic religious systems where where you have this idea and the idea itself, it like, I think that some people talk about it, like, you know, it starts out with like this big idea. And so the big idea of cult 
cultic Christian. So like, you know, the idea of Christianity in general is like, oh, okay, there's this, there's this guy and he was born and he lived and he died and we're going to follow his teachings or whatever. And, you know, some people want to kind of be reductionistic, I think, and say, well, all religions are cults. I don't think that all religions are cults because I, I think that that word cult even speaks to a specific idea, a specific way of living and doing and being that is destructive to people. And yes, Christianity has been mighty destructive um, over the course, over the course of history has been mighty destructive to, to a lot, to a lot of people in a lot of places as have other religions. I think that, that in the West, our bias um, people, people speak out against Christianity and it's like, well, you know, Islam has done very similarly in Africa in the in the um what in the Levant in the in the quote unquote Middle East, um is very like like it's very similar type of thing. Um, we see where we have you know um we have harm and stuff being perpetuated against people in Gaza, and that's because of Judaism. Um, you've got people from all sorts of you know various other religions, um harming pe- harming one another and harming people throughout the world, and but um harming people throughout the world. And that's not to not to reduce that and not to say oh well that's well that's not important. But I think that there are also religions that put good into the world and that for every you know person that's out there doing bad that their religion you know makes them do bad, there are people who religion is something that's is very profitable for and they they are moving from a from a place of, of peace, from a place of wanting to make the world better. Like I think of you know, somebody like Martin Luther King. Um, you know, he without Christianity, um, you know, yes, his ideas were good without without the Christianity aspect of it, but it was something that that, that gave him the resources. Um, than to to be a good to be a good person and to promote good and stuff in the world, but anyway, like this idea of to me of a, of a cult. Whenever we're talking about like a specific group or a specific religious movement, it's it's to me it's it's different than there's something that's just that's just different about it than a mainstream religion. And and, and I don't know if you if you um, have had some of the same thoughts or whatever. Like like for for you, like what separates a cult from just a, a regular religion? Yeah, I, th- I think you're on to something. I, I, uh, a few months ago, I, I finished reading a book called um, Sapiens, A Brief History. And in the book, the author talks about unifying forces throughout history. So how did uh, culture, how did human beings as a species evolve to get to this point? And in the book, the author argues that um, there are three uh, huge unifiers of humanity that helped us evolve to this point of civilization. And he lists them in no particular order as religion, currency, and empire. And so he talks about religion being a unifying force in order for the elites of a society or the, the kings, the queens, the, the people in power to keep all of the masses in check, they had to have a way um, so people would sort of be like distracted and would be like, oh, this is the way things are. So you're exactly right. It can be argued that obviously religion, uh, all religions, Christianity, because that's 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 my uh, perspective and yours as well, has done a lot of harm in the world, but it has also done a lot of good. And I, I think I agree with the author of, of Sapiens that the only reason that we are here and can have these kinds of conversations is because of the good 
that religion has accomplished in the world. It's given us the ability to think in certain ways, uh, the ability to, to push back against oppression. Uh, you referenced Dr. King, certainly uh, his, uh, his motivation for speaking up and speaking out uh, was his Christian faith. But I think in the United States specifically, the reason why we have such a uh, huge proliferation of cults and cult-like groups is because of the double-edged sword of the First Amendment, freedom of religion. So in a lot of ways, freedom of religion set up this, this beautiful system where you can have religion in the United States or have no religion in the United States, but it also sets up this system where religious innovation becomes a big deal. And so anytime someone comes around, uh, whether it's in history or in modern times, with a new idea, and in, in the case of the United Pentecostal Church, uh, their big innovation uh, was building upon, um, you know, speaking with other tongues, which was an innovation of itself that gave birth to the, to the broader Pentecostal movement. But for the United Pentecostal Church, their innovation was you've got to be baptized in Jesus' name, and then the developing doctrine of what they referred to as the oneness of God. And from that uh, came all kinds of behavioral and thought control and high control religious demands upon what people wore, uh, where they went, uh, how they conducted their lives. So I think this idea of religious innovation um, in, in many ways in the context of the United States has served to perpetuate cults and cult-like behavior because everybody's looking for an angle. Everybody's out there hustling, right? If you're, if you're spiritual or if you're religious in any way, and it's really hard to grow up in the United States without that kind of influence, and all of a sudden you want to be the, the, the new person uh, on, on the scene with the new idea that no one has heard before, and suddenly God is speaking to you, and that makes you really special in the history of the world, and uh, people are attracted to that because everyone, that's one of the characteristics of a cult, everyone wants to be thought of as special, unique, exceptional. We've got the truth. We know better than everybody else. Wow. There is so much in what you said. To there, There's just so much to that. And something that you said within this of like this idea of this innovation that like religion is in America is often about innovation. And um, also you, you tie in like some of the forces of capitalism and stuff too, about like, you know, you, you pass in that collection plate Absolutely. and you get, in, you get in them ties and you, in them offerings. Tax-free. It's, it's, it's all tax free. You get you get buildings, you get land, you get all this stuff that's tax free. You tie that in with the forces of capitalism and even that innovation can be lucrative. And you see even within mainstream Christianity, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, but I promise it connects. I have been doing some research on um, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. That's that's one of, I, I am adjacent. I was never an IHOP or I was never on staff at IHOP, but definitely was adjacent to the International House of Prayer. Well, right now they're going through a massive scandal. Um, their leader, Mike Bickle, surprise, surprise, he's in a sex scandal. Surprise, surprise, he's been, he was a groomer and... Um, was sexually abusing a lot of women. A lot of women. Um, numbers are untold right now, um, but it's it's a really um, just it's a terrible thing. Well, anyway, I was just just happened to be um, looking at some articles and stuff 
on uh, the Kansas City Star, which is a local, which is the local paper paper there. I'm trying to you know get some more information and stuff um, for some things for some work that I'm doing outside of this podcast on on IHOP. And I ran into this article that was talking about like the it listed the um, five largest churches in America and like the five fastest growing churches in America at the time. This was like an article from like 1991 or 93, something like that, early, early 1990s. And the um, biggest church um, at the time was uh, First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, which I'm in Chicago. I'm a South Sider. Hammond is like sometimes it's closer to go to do stuff in Hammond than it is um, to actually like stay in Chicago um, sometimes for things. And so First Baptist Churches is right down the street for me. The attendance of that church back in the early 90s, and this is like you know, one of the, big, the biggest church in America at the time, the attendance was something like 13,000 people. Now, I, I, was, I was shocked um, because there is a church, um, I, I used to live in Springfield, Missouri, and there, if you are from the Springfield area, you would know the church, but there's a church in Springfield that just their one campus, because it's multi-campus, even the fact that we think of churches as having multiple like satellite things, again, innovation, they, that is the Sunday attendance for one building right now and that's not the large, the largest church in America like that's not that's not by any stretch the largest church in America at all but like but like this what we thought was the largest church in America back in the 90s the innovation of getting people into the door and building like this idea of a mega church um and really like what it is is it's like there there are more people to to attend the church but even what's happening is that that mega church cuz capitalism um it comes at the expense of all these smaller churches. Um, you know, they, they have that they have the biggest idea, they have the most innovation, they have whatever. And so that brings me to this idea that um, a common thread of what you were saying with innovation is really it's this concept that uh, there's an, an article on psych, uh, on psychology today. It's written um, by Ewan Morrison, and it's called uh, 12 Signs That Somebody Might Might May Be Involved with a Cult." Um, I don't feel I feel like that the that the article itself is mistitled um there is a there is a a pullout kind of below uh, within the article that is the common stages in the life cycle of a cult and i actually think that 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 should be the title of the of the article but i'm not you know doing stuff for psychology today so they, they wouldn't listen to me but the first stage in the life cycle of a cult is the big idea and that is um, a leader or leaders propose a new transcendent idea that promises a panacea solution for alienated and vulnerable people. This big idea promises to solve all problems, to end loneliness, isolation, and a sense of personal failure. It makes vague promises of meaning and salvation. There's usually a charismatic leader with a single text with its own coded language that spreads the big idea. Now, I think about my experience with the furnace and with which was connected to um, the IHOP Kansas City, um, the, so this charismatic prayer movement. And the big idea 
that Mike Bickle promoted. And we didn't like worship Mike Bickle. Like I don't want it to sound weirder than what, than what it is. We didn't worship Mike Bickle, but people looked at, looked to Mike, like, you know, he is this, he's a spiritual father. He's this leader. He's had all these big spirit, big grandiose spiritual experiences that confirm that, you know, he's a prophet who's called by God. And he has a lot of really good things to say about Christianity and the Bible. And one of the things that Mike Bickle claims that an angel, I believe, told him whenever he was on a mission trip or something for some reason i don't know why i don't know if anybody really knows why he was in cairo egypt this dude's this dude's from kansas city like why like bro why are you in egypt but anyway but he was in egypt for some reason i have no idea um i have no idea why um but but he i think it was an angel that told him or maybe it was god himself i don't remember but he said that that like uh, that he was going to change the expression and understanding of Christianity in a single generation. Now, if you're somebody like me, you know, I was um, 22, 23 years old when I first connected to IHOP and I still, and I connected to IHOP while I was in the UPC and while I was still in the UPC and still, and still um, had, had, was in, was part of the UPC church. Well, this big idea of, because, you know, the church that I was in at the time, it was going through a massive, because we were in the process of leaving the UPC, it was going through this massive church split. There was just all, there's a whole story to be told, a whole soap opera to be told within that. But I had really reached a place in my own faith where I wanted, where I wanted more and where I wanted to see more, where I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, you know, I'm Pentecostal. We say that we believe all these things. We say that we believe in miracles. We say that we believe in spiritual gifts. We say that we believe in all these things. Well, like, why aren't they happening? Or even more so, like, why do I feel like in this church that is supposed to be, you know, the full gospel and all this other type of stuff? Why do I feel so restricted in this? So you have somebody who coming along who's saying, oh, well, you know, this movement is going to change the expression in Christianity, the, 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 exp- the expression and understanding of Christianity in a generation it's like oh bro like I'm, child i want to sign up for that like that sounds that's that's a that's a big idea right that's a that's an innovation that's different than just the we're going to come to church and you know sing sing our little songs have our little shout down go to church you know on on sunday morning and sunday evening and whatever like that sounded like oh wow this is going to be this is going to be transformational this is a this is a this is a big idea if you think about that innovation you mentioned capitalism right so if Think about how much in the United States and in the Western world is driven by capitalism. In, in, in fact, if, if we were to say today, you know what, I'm, I'm checking out of capitalism. Well, good luck with that, right? Because, I mean, you've got, you've got to live, you've got to survive. Right. And so the same kind of culture is now informing the church. And what you referenced with with Mike Bickle um, is sounds very familiar. If you go back in history, you look at uh, Joseph Smith. He claimed to have a visitation from an angel that showed showed him uh, the golden plates, uh, where he was able to to get the Book of Mormon and introduce uh, those innovations uh, to uh, American history and formed his own church. And on and on and on it goes. And every one of these leaders claims to have an origin story that puts them in the place of a unique generational leader. And then all of us, right, because we want to be unique, we want to be different, we want to stand out, we want to think of ourselves as special Uh, We gravitate to these kinds of leaders, and then we're a part of something that is larger uh, than ourselves. Um, But what it ends up doing is it perpetuates a culture of harm 
because when the prophecies don't come to pass or when um, the uh, goals aren't met, when the buildings um, fall into debt or disrepair or the leader is caught up in some sort of scandal, as we're seeing now with, with IHOP, um, everyone gets disillusioned, but there's something about humanity. We keep returning to it over and over again. And I think it's because, like capitalism, it's very hard for us to to disengage from the thought that, hey, we have agency over our own lives. We have the ability to make a difference in our world but thinking of ourselves as somehow connected to a larger plan that's going to be revolutionary and change the world, we have these illusions of grandeur uh, that lead us down a path of abuse where the goals of the leader or the goals of the group become more important than our own agency and caring for ourselves and our families. And that's when it gets into the dangerous territory of cults. You've said a mouthful there that, you know, for I know for myself, um, being in the United Pentecostal, the United Pentecostal Church, even it was like, oh, you know, this is there's going to be revival, which is like, you know, for, for some Christians, the idea of like Christianity, you know, people's people's hearts, people's minds, the the culture, whatever, um, changing because of the love of Jesus. And I remember, you know, joining this United Pentecostal Church because I could see around me in Springfield um, that, you know, there, there was a lot of people experiencing homelessness. Um, there were, there were, a, there was a lot of um, churches, but not always um, a lot of, you know, what I would have characterized back then, you know, as morality or whatever. So this big idea of, you know, I have, I have a pastor, I have a leader, there's a church that's saying, you know, we want to, we want to see people, um, you know, baptized in Jesus name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Like that was the, that was a big thing. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a big idea. Wow. You know, we, we want people to see people experience this. And really a lot of it was, we want to see because you know, Springfield is the Bible Belt. A lot of it was we want to see Christians, people who are already committed Christians, convert to our way of thinking. I didn't realize that at the time, but I'm able to name that now. But again, it was it was a it was this this big i it was this big idea. Uh, we're going to take a break now, and whenever we come back from our break, we're going to talk a little bit more about what makes something a cult. So we'll see you on the other side. And we're back. So in this segment, we're going to talk about what makes a cult a cult. We've talked a little bit about just some of our broadly, some of our experiences, this this big idea idea of what um, draws people into cults. Um, talked a little bit about capitalism, talked a little bit um, just about, you know, the, the thing that uh, religion is and the, and the force that it serves in society. But now I think it's important for our listeners, I think that it's important um, to get to, down to some brass tacks just about like what makes a religious group um, a destructive, a destructive cult. So Scott, do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I appreciate the information that you shared uh, with me a few days ago as we were preparing uh, for our conversation, the bite model. Um, so if you think about um, uh, the idea of 
cults controlling behavior, information, thought, and emotions, and how that plays out over time in some of these high control groups. And I, I know certainly in the United Pentecostal Church, um, behavior is like the first one listed. And man, I, I could go down the, the list literally on all of the behaviors that were controlled. So uh, growing up in, in my uh, small rural Pentecostal, United Pentecostal Church expression of, of the larger uh, ministerial organization known as the United Pentecostal Church. And and by the way, for our listeners, you, you can look into the history. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church was formed uh, in 1945 uh, through a merger of two larger Pentecostal groups. And what's amazing, if you go back and look at their history, when those two groups came together, there was one that was really insistent on what they termed the plan of salvation in Acts 2 and verse 38. They were insistent on baptism in Jesus' name, some of the things that we've talked about. But there was another group um, that was a group of northern Pentecostal churches that uh, embraced what we would refer to as Orthodox Christianity, the idea that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the account of Jesus Christ alone. And they came together based upon their shared innovation of uh, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And they agreed that we're not going to insist on these uh, specific doctrines and we're not going to argue over that. Well, that that lasted all of maybe 10 years or so. And then eventually uh, the group that was insistent on these particular doctrines uh, sort of had a, a hostile takeover of the group. And, and that's that's what we know today as the United Pentecostal Church. But in my small church, uh, and this was true of other United Pentecostal churches as well, uh, women uh, were forbidden to wear pants of any kind. Um, so they all had to wear long skirts and no makeup. Uh, they were forbidden uh, to uh, uh, for cutting their hair. And, and all of these were based on obscure, maybe one or, or two Bible verses that they could find in the Old Testament, uh, the, the hair was based upon the the obscure and 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 hotly debated and contested uh, passage in in First Corinthians chapter eleven. But for men, um, there weren't a lot of prohibitions, which is also telling, right? That many of the mm-hmm. prohibitions in our small church and in the UPC governing behavior specifically focused on women's behavior and women's bodies. As far as men was con- were concerned, we, we weren't allowed to grow uh, any kind of facial hair. And of course, there's no justification for that in the Bible None. whatsoever, although people try. Uh, it's amazing that they try to do it. Um, but basically, it was based upon clothing styles of the 1950s when the United Pentecostal Church became an organization. And so what they tried to do is adopt uh, the uh, the normative styles of white people uh, in the 1950s, and then pull that forward, and later on develop these 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 biblical these very weak biblical justifications for these uh, attempts to control the behavior of their uh, constituents, and and they've been very successful. Now they brand this as apostolic identity, which is very creative if you think about it, because it's it's a unique identity, it's a unique branding for their group, but it's not just any identity, 
it's the apostolic identity. So like a lot of these origin groups, origin stories for these kinds of groups, they trace their uh, ideas all the way back to the book of Acts, to the original apostles, uh, even though the apostles had no concept of what was men's clothing or women's clothing or how women should wear their hair or not. I mean, they had ideas for their culture, but certainly nothing that would apply to the 21st century. And in fact, if, if we want to look at how they treated women uh, versus how women are treated today, um, it, it's, it's, it's very, uh, seems like these groups like the UPC are trying to take us backwards and not forwards. Yeah, you know, it's it's wild. There's so much more that can be said about the behavior control yeah. in the UPC. Um, I came from a church that was like more quote unquote liberal, um, where men actually were, they, men could have facial hair. Um, men, you, you've, I think you forgot that men couldn't wear shorts in the right. in the summer. Like I, I can't remember if you said that or not. And women weren't allowed to wear jewelry of um, any kind. Like you, everybody could or nobody could wear jewelry. You could wear a watch, um, and that was and that was it. That was like because it was functional jewelry. You could wear a watch. Some people would get away with if you're in high school, like maybe wearing a class ring, um, wearing a wedding ring because that was functional. There were some people even who even preached against who even preached against that. Um, and then there were just like there, there's like we sh- we should probably do like an episode of at one point of just like all of the stuff yeah you all mentioned the behavior you, control yeah you mentioned the the wristwatch and you know what's funny is that uh, I was an evangelist in the UPC for about 13 years which uh, for those of you that that don't know what that is in in our context it was basically I would be in a different church every Sunday so as you traveled around the country you would find um, variations on these controls mm-hmm. of behavior. And, um, I had one pastor that I was preaching for and, and he was big on, man, you, uh, you know, you can only wear a wristwatch, uh, and, and, but every other kind of jewelry, even wedding rings were, was forbidden. And, um, I, I thought this at the time, I, I didn't have the courage at the time to ask him, but I, I felt like asking him, um, where did you buy that wristwatch? And, you know, he would say something like, well, maybe Walmart, Sears, whatever. I'm dating myself there. But and then then I would follow up with, well, what department sold that wristwatch? <laughs> the jewelry department. Oh, OK. I got you. Yeah, it's it's wild. And the, the inconsistencies even in just like some of the rules and stuff like that, like that is almost warrants its own episode itself, but it all comes back to this behavior control thing and, and, and high control, high demand groups, cults, they're about controlling your behavior. And then I'm going to skip in the, in the bite model to the, to the E. So you have behavior control, you have information, you have thought control, and then you have emotional control. And um, the reason I'm going to skip to the E is because for, because you talk about like all the rules and stuff for the women's bodies and how women you know, lived and moved and have their breathing being, well, there was um, emotional control tied to that. And so every once in a while you would get, effectively it was, and I guess this was also information control too a little bit, but occasionally, because back in the days, whenever I was in it, I was in it in um, the early or in the, the mid 2000s. So like the 2000s, like I, I started going to the church um, in 2004, at the end of 2004, 2005, whenever I was a freshman in college. And um, so that was kind of like the mid 
to late Audis. We got the the church that I was in left the UPC officially in 2010. So it was so it was five years um, within within that context. And so you know back so I'm dating myself too a little bit, but back in those days, you know everybody like email was the thing. So this was kind of like you know pre everybody having social media. Um, so I had social media because I was in college. Um, but everybody so I had you know MySpace and Facebook, but everybody else wasn't on MySpace and Facebook. But you would get emails and everything. So people um, you know in the church would just you know send emails to one another, and you remember like forwards like. You people would have you know you people would forward you uh, some of the times it would be jokes that this was the way that we did memes i guess for you young people who don't remember them days um who might be listening who don't remember those days forwards were like our memes so like you would get like all these things that were forwards that were just you know these these pictures or like a lot of urban legends spread that way whatever um but but that was one of the information sources that that people had and i remember occasion that there were two pieces of what I recognized then as propaganda and definitely like would be like now as propaganda. One that we got was um, the, was this whole thing about like George Bush, like somebody hearing George Bush speaking in tongues, George W W speaking in tongues in the white house. And I'm, and I, I mean, cause again, I was college educated, um, which was not very common. And Scott, I know that you'll be able to say more about this at, at, at a, you know, another time. Just being, being, having, a, having a bachelor's degree was like, I mean, you were like educated, educated in that context. Was people were so anti-intellectual and there was even suspicion of you. There was even suspicion because it was like, oh, you know, whatever. Exactly. Um, sometimes because people were so anti-intellectual. But I remember being like, bro, that's not, that's, that's straight up, like that's propaganda, fam. Um, so I was like, I don't think that George Bush is speaking in tongues in the White House, but whatever. I guess if that makes if that makes y'all feel if that makes y'all feel good. Um, but anyway, there was another one that would go around, and it was about it was always this woman and her husband was in a car accident, and um, she and, and so like whenever he was in the hospital, she took her long uncut hair and placed it over him in the hospital, and he recovered. Or it would be you know a woman, you know her her child um, was was sick or something like that, so she took her hair and and put her hair over her child and prayed, and God spared her child's life or whatever. Um, some people would call this like holy magic hair, basically because you know it was long and it was uncut and so like that's emotional control so because so, because it would always be and the reason why it was emotional control is because this thing would always end with so whatever the iteration of the story some some family member is close to death and sometimes it would even just be oh this woman prayed and be, and she and she prayed and because she prayed um there was you know authority on her prayers and there's a whole you know book about it like about oh you know women have an uncut hair and that and that get and that's your power and that's your authority and blah, 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 blah. But it all came down to if you don't cut your hair. Whenever I say don't cut your hair, I mean, like, you couldn't even get your hair trimmed. Right. Like, it was, like, you could not, like, scissors could not touch your hair in any shape, form, or fashion. Otherwise, like, that was, that was wrong. That was, that was bad. That was, you know, evil, whatever. And so it was always tied to your family's like, you know, health, their strength. And so like, you know, if you cut your hair, and so basically it was like, you know, if you cut your hair, your husband might die in a car wreck. Or if you cut your hair, you know, your kid might get pneumonia and die. 
And that's, that's, you know, controlling your emotions. And then also, you know, the information control, the aspect of, you know, sending out essentially what, what amounts to um, Pentecostal propaganda, but controlling the information um, outside of the, the UPC. Cause like I said, I've been, I've been in, in multiple groups and we'll get, and we'll get into that um, at some other, at some other date, but like, I've seen, you know, I've seen that information control. I've seen um, where I I went through the bite model and you can't see it now, but I, but I have it on my iPad and um, I went through and made check marks. And so I had like three check marks, like red was for like the, the UPC church that I was in Um, blue was for the furnace and then green um, was for the wall. And so I kind of checked off like all the different things. And there are a lot of check marks on this. And just to follow up on that thought of uh, emotional control and all of those stories. And, and this is where, you know, it, it, we, we laugh about some of these stories because they are funny uh, from one perspective, but also um, they're very sad because of the real harms that are perpetuated. Um, you know, what, what I ended up uh, going through and, and still to this day, um, there are times where I catch myself um, if, 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 if I do something that the church labeled sinful or wrong behavior, then I feel this low-key anxiety. And at other times in my life, it was very uh, debilitating at, at times where, you know, I couldn't even get through the day because this was all on my mind. Oh my God, if the rapture happens, I'm going to be left behind. I'm going to go to hell uh, because I said this cuss word, or I inadvertently looked at something that, that I shouldn't be looking at. And this massive amount of guilt um, that we were saddled with in the United Pentecostal Church over issues that weren't even sin um, and that weren't remotely wrong, uh, but because our church defined it as such, um, then they had devastating consequences. And, and again, I was a male growing up in this environment. So what I went through um, was really insignificant compared to what women faced. And you mentioned the holy magic hair and, and all of these stories were perpetuated um, to lift up a model of womanhood in the United Pentecostal Church. And unfortunately, what it perpetuated was um, there was no nuance. There was no spectrum. There were only two categories of women in the United Pentecostal Church, those that were celebrated as angels or those that were demonized, excuse me for this term, as whores, right? So you had uh, two spectrums, two, two extremes, and there was no spectrum, there was no nuance. And so if you didn't live up to the holy magic hair stories or the, the woman of God or the, the Proverbs 31 ideal, then you were put in that other category that was very dehumanizing and devastating to someone's emotional and mental well-being. 
you know, it, I'm glad that you brought that up because it, there is, again, there's so, 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 so much and we're running out of time, but there is so much that we could talk about with that. But I, but there are a couple of things I want to pull out with that. The first thing I want to pull out with that, that I want to pull out of that is again, the demands on women. And it seems like in these high control groups, there are, there's always a common thread. And I wish that more of the scholarship and stuff around cults would recognize this, that there is a very common thread thread where there are demands that are placed on women that are not placed that are not often placed on men Um, and that is across the spectrum whether it's religious whether it's political whatever it is there's always there's there's always something there or almost always something there for for women and and for me as a black woman um you know my my hair doesn't grow down my hair my hair grows up and out and back then before i before i had even um started started going to to the united pentecostal church that i was in um i wore my hair it relaxed so like i you know i would get my hair chemically straightened um you know every every couple months or whatever and there was like a tremendous amount of pressure within that because you know your hair your hair is supposed to be you know getting longer supposed to be this and that and it was just, and, and there was, there was even kind of like subtle racism that I experienced. It wasn't subtle at all. It was absolute racism, right? Well, because the standard, yeah. the standard was, this is what white women should look like, but there was no um, consideration of what black women, of what black men, black families had to deal with. Right. And I call, and I call it subtle because there, it it wasn't said like, oh, this is, you know, like you're not good enough. You're not this and that. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was just, oh, Hey, here's the standard. Guess what? You don't, you don't really fit the standard. Well, and so, so then it comes, so then it's, it's by implication. It's, it was never, it was, there, there, there are a few things that people would say, but it was always this kind of, this benevolent racism kind of thing where it was like, oh, well, you know, some, yeah, somebody like, you know, her, like her hair is not going to grow down to whatever. And I'm like, okay, first of all, like, yes, black people can have like long hair. Our hair grows differently. Our hair has a different, has a different um, chemical and like, you know, structure and stuff to it. But that, but that was one aspect of it that for me as a black woman felt really just like, okay, the standard is white women and i do not and so and we called them like holiness standards that those were the rules were called holiness standards so the standard it caters to white women period all the imagery all the everything and so it always it was always just a weird space for me within that um because people would just kind of even like some of the women would just kind of like look at me with like pity right because you know oh well you know she's black so her hair is not going to grow as long people would like say stuff and i'm just like okay that's not that's not true but I also came in whenever I came in my hair was short um anyway so like I like you I went off to college I cut my hair sounded like it was like it was relatively um short anyway and so it was I mean because you know yeah so that so that was just that was something that was really um frustrating at times because it was just like okay there's this standard that doesn't that doesn't include me but the other thing that you talked about um that i want to pull out to kind of go back to the bite model here is you talked about like those feelings of guilt 
that you had whenever you would do things. Well, you know, that's thought control. <laughs> that's, that's, that's thought control. The idea of like, if you are going to sin and, and then you, and, and even if just you, you thought about doing something, you didn't actually do it. You just thought about doing it or you did right. it. And so now it's, you did, or you did the thing that was sinful and now it's dominating your thoughts because you have the voice of your pastor. You have the voice of whatever, you know, preacher or evangelist came through and preached some, you know, thing that you shouldn't be doing or whatever. Cause like, cause some people would just, they, they would preach against everything except for fresh air. And like, it was like, this is, you, you get, you get those things in your, in your mind and in your heart. Well, that's controlling your thoughts. But the one thing that I don't think that we've, that we've talked about is the information control. And that gets me actually into um, our, our segment that will, that will close out this episode with, but there's this segment we're we're experimenting with it. We'll see how it goes, but it's called like, you know, that grinds my gears. And so one of the things that grinds my gears, and this is specific to the United Pentecostal Church, there will be other, I, I will probably have other grinds my gears from the other groups that I was involved in, but it's around information control. So in the United Pentecostal Church, the general understanding was that people don't watch TV. And, and that you, and by watching TV, now people would have, and this is part of it, but this isn't even what I'm going to say that grinds my gears, but this is one of the things is that people wouldn't have TVs in their house. They would have monitors, quote unquote, um, because, you know, people playing with language here because cults play with language a lot. They play with, they, they, they play with language and words to get you to accept their reality. That's, that's part of like, you know, high control religious, religious things. And so um, you would have a monitor, which was just a regular TV that wasn't connected to satellite or cable or an antenna. And so people had monitors in their house. I will, will say I did not have a monitor. Um, my, my TV was a TV. And I had, and my church, again, my church is a little bit liberal, so it wasn't like preached against, but it was like, oh, you know, it would be better if you didn't have it. I had cable. Sometimes I had like Netflix and whatever. So, I mean, I just, I guess that was the rule that I broke. But this, but that not having TV and not going to the movies, that's information control, fam. So, you know, you're supposed to, so I mean, I I was in it, thankfully, in the age of the internet where, you know, I got, I mean, like I said, you know, a lot of times I I was also poor college student through some of this. So I didn't have cable because I didn't have cable because we couldn't afford it. It was like, oh, hey, this is a way that we can, that we can save money. So we're not going to have cable, but I had the internet. So thankfully I knew what was going on in the world and had the radio, thankfully, or whatever. But one of the things that grinds my gears is that there is like, a lot of culture that I missed out on from like the years of 2005 to 2010 because I couldn't go to the movies. And I literally did not go. I did not go to the movies. I did. I did not for five years. So I remember the first movie that I saw after my church left the UPC. I remember it was Transformers. That was the first, that was the first movie that I had seen a bunch of us after we had left. And, and we, after, after the, the uh, church had left the UPC and it was official, a bunch of us youth leaders went out to see the, to see the Transformers movie. And that was the first, that was the first movie that I, that I had seen. But what got me though, and this is the grinds my gears is because we weren't allowed to go to the movie theater. And so to me, the movie theater is the movie theater. Well, I was lived in Springfield. Springfield, Missouri is about 45 minutes from Branson. And, you know, it's, it's the, the entertainment capital of like the world for like that entertainment. But I'm sorry, Branson. Um, but Branson, they had an IMAX in Branson. And so there are people, my pastor included, the youth pastor of my church included, 
districts or uh, officials, officers in the Missouri district of the United Pentecostal Church, they would go to Branson because, again, we're playing with language here. It's not the theater. It's the IMAX. They would go to the IMAX and would see movies. They would take their kids. to. So I'm like, if you are going to go to Branson to look at a big screen, you could just go to the to you know the back of R.I.P. Palace Theater Dollar Movie Night in right. Springfield. R.I.P. You could go there, but like, but but it was but it was like okay, well we're not allowed to go to the movies, but somehow and I and and I would ask people to explain it to me, and nobody could explain it. It was just one of those things that the rules didn't cover it yet, so we could do it. You could stream stuff on Netflix. You could do all this other. You couldn't watch TV, but. Oh, streaming comes in. You have people, I would say people, this is after we gotten out, where they're talking about the streaming shows. I'm like, fam, you ain't supposed to watch TV. What do you mean you you watching you watching all these seasons of this show? I thought that you weren't supposed to be watching TV. I thought that y'all was so holy. So anyway, that grinds my gears because I did not go, and it was and it was my choice. I could have cheated and gone to the IMAX, but I but I just, you know, kind of was like, I didn't I didn't agree with the principle, but I was like, okay, you know, this is this is the thing and this is what we're expected to do here. So I'm just, you know, not gonna do this. But they, but people was out here going to the going to the IMAX and that just and that just really grinds my gears. Yeah. And speaking of grinding gears, um, there's so many stories that I could tell. I'll tell one. Um, in nineteen seventy-seven, I was six years old, and my oldest brother um knocked on the door and uh, he was he was came to visit our home and I I was playing in the living room, but I have this vivid memory of him coming uh, back home. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to go see star Wars, star Wars, by the way, is like for my generation and for people that have my disposition, it's like the greatest movie ever. Right. Of course, I wanted to see Star Wars. It was what all of my friends were talking about. But in that moment, even at six years old, I had been conditioned and I'd heard enough sermons in our small United Pentecostal church to know that going to the movies was a sin. And so I said no, because I wanted to be a good little boy. I wanted to be a good Pentecostal young man. And I missed out on seeing Star Wars on the big screen. I had to watch it on a VHS tape in the 1980s on the smallest screen imaginable. And, you know, Star Wars was created to be seen and enjoyed on a huge screen with surround sound and with popcorn and all of the fun things. But because of my church and the rules that governed our behavior and their uh, intentions on controlling what kinds of information that we had access to, we could not watch Star Wars. Well, a few months later, after I turned my brother down, uh, my Sunday school teacher, who worked at the local library, um, invited some of her Sunday school pupils to the library, and uh, she had a surprise for us. And she pulled out uh, a, a reel, a, a movie reel. And it was a short action sequence from Star Wars that a few of us that attended her Sunday school class were allowed to watch at the library on a medium-sized screen, the kind that you would watch movies on at school. That was okay, but I missed out on the, the theater 
production because we weren't allowed to go to movies. So yes, my, my, my gears are adequately ground. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would grind my gears too, to be able to see Star Wars. So like, I I wasn't alive. I'm sorry, Scott. I wasn't alive um, for the, for the star, for the original trilogy. I remember whenever the um, prequels came out, that yeah. was, and I remember whenever the original trilogy. So I've got, I got to see the Empire Strikes Back on the, on the big screen um, back in, back in the nineties, um, back in like, I guess it would probably been 1997 um, during the, during the 20th anniversary. So I did get to see Star Wars on the, on the big screen, at least see the Empire Strikes Back. But, but yeah, that, yeah. that's like really, that's, that's sad. Like it's that, so sad. Yes. That's sad. So we're coming to a close now, but the, I want to answer the question um, that this episode poses is, you know, what was I, was I in a cult? <laughs> what was I, what was I in a cult? Um, and, and we sort of have answered this question, but I'd like to, I, I think more put it a, a finer point on it. So, so Scott, were, were you in a cult? Absolutely. Um, not only does it check all of the boxes uh, of the scholarly material, but on a, on a, on a personal level, um, to this day, um, there are, um, issues with how I think about things, how I approach the world, how I interact with other people that are the residual effects of growing up in the United Pentecostal Church. Now, obviously, there is a spectrum. We weren't um, drinking Kool-Aid and uh, killing ourselves like, unfortunately, it happened at Jonestown and, and other cults. Um, but a cult is still a cult. And if it's controlling your behavior, if it's controlling information, if it's controlling your thoughts and manipulating your emotions, it checks all of the boxes. And something that has been very helpful for me, uh, two things, uh, education, um, go to community college, take classes online, even if it's something that um, interests you and you're learning about things in the world find ways to educate yourself about the world and about information in general. Uh, don't cut yourself off from information just because your religious group forbids it. And then the second thing that has been very helpful to me is therapy through the years, talking to someone who is qualified uh, to understand what is going on in me emotionally, what's going on in me mentally, and helping me work through these things. And for the most part, uh, with me, it's just been talking about and writing about my experiences and then hearing other people's experiences and, and seeing, yes, yes, indeed, the United Pentecostal Church, as we experienced it, uh, was a cult. Wow. Well, thank you for that, Scott. And answering the question for myself, for me, it's a little bit, and probably because I, I have connections to like kind of multiple groups that fall that fall within the category, within the criteria. For me, it's a little bit more complex and a little bit more nuanced. And I'll unpack this probably in the in the next episode um, where we're going to talk about nobody nobody joins a cult, um, and and what and what all that means. Um, it's been hard to really like form the words and to form like the concept of like yeah, like I was I was in a cult because for some of it, and I think per, in particular talking about like the wall and the furnace, where like. Um, especially like with the furnace, like it was definitely a cult for a lot of people. And for me, I think that, that some of my experience in it, 
Um, because I, because I, I had joined the furnace after I had um, left the church that was in the United Pentecostal that that had left the United Pentecostal Church. So I was in um, my old UPC church. We had left. I was there for about two, about a year or two after we left. So I'd had some of that like post, you know, United Pentecostal flair. I kind of just, you know, eased back into regular Christianity. And then I joined this, and then I joined this ministry. Um, I joined the furnace. And so at that point, you know, my radar and everything was up. I wasn't really like, there were things that I saw that I was just like, but but in my mind, and I was telling some of my friends this who were connected to IHOP, that like IHOP and like the furnace and whatever, that looked safe compared to what I had come out of. So what I had come out of like these just look like regular Christians. Like, yeah, they have some weird like things that they do. Um, they maybe have some weird things that like people talk about. Does anybody really believe these things? Uh, I'm not sure. It's just like, okay, these are you know, cool stories about people being visited by angels or whatever. And like, I wasn't really out here, like, you know, imbibing that and believing that like for, for my life, like, Oh, Mike Bickle had a vision of an, or, you know, he saw an angel that's going to impact what I'm doing doing with my life. I, I wasn't, I wasn't that deep into it. Um, but there are people that I know that, you know, they, they experienced, they did internships and they experienced what was tantamount to, it was never said this way, but it was tantamount to forced fasting. Well, I mean, I was, I was married. I had my own car. I had my own place to live. If, if, if I was hungry, guess what I was going to eat. And so like, if I, if I was like, you know what, my, my flesh is too weak. I can't, I cannot fast. I was, I'm done with the fast. I'm done with the fast. I wasn't put in a situation where I was living in, you know, a townhouse with six other people and we're fasting and there's no food in the chat and chew, which was the place where we used to, where we used to eat. And there's no food in the chat and chew and I'm poor and I don't have any money and I'm living with all these people who are fasting. So I have to fast. Like I, that, that wasn't my situation, but it was, but it was other people's experience in this ministry. And so um, that makes it, that makes that a cult. Like it wasn't necessarily, that wasn't my experience, but that, but that makes that a cult. Like with the wall, I didn't really kind of realize it was a cult. There were things about it that definitely I look back and I'm definitely like, okay, yeah, those were red flags, but I was never like really deeply con I was connected to the leaders and stuff, um, on like a friendship level, but I never, I could feel them like trying to pull me in deeper, but I was just kind of always, cause I was a part of another church, you know, as a youth pastor, whatever, I wasn't trying to join their thing. I just really liked these people and they were my friends and we would get together and pray sometimes. Um, but I realize now that like, okay, this was a cult, you know, the leader thinks that, you know, he is one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. I didn't know that. I need to say that. I did wow. not, I, I knew this guy for I knew this guy for almost a decade and I never knew that that was that basically ended our friendship because he told me that and I was just like I don't believe this um I just was like obviously like, like that 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 was a lot um, for somebody to tell you that they are somebody from the Bible um, that's mentioned in biblical prophecy, like that, that's, that's a lot. Right. And so I, and so then, but then looking back and then talking to other people who were part of it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this was like, this was a cult. 
like it wasn't it wasn't again it wasn't like a cult like because i because i had i had agency but there were things you know and you talk about like having like the thoughts and the different and the different things and whatever there are there are aspects where i can see like where i definitely um was under like some type of thought control or some type of emotional control um if not behavior control and i think that because the but because the upc was just so freaking oppressive there was just so much leaving that it really kind of made me more susceptible made me left me susceptible because i'm thinking like oh these are just like regular christians you know we're not like i can like i can cut my hair i can go to the movies like i can and so and so because of all the behavior regulations from the upc i was in other places that like i guess i sort of felt like well like i don't have to agree with this I don't have to believe this. And I'm, so I was in a much more like kind of skeptical place um, that, but again, like I, I, I say that it didn't hit me like it was a cult, but I look at again, like the criteria of what these things are, of what a high control group is. And I can look and say, these were high control, high demand groups. And the term cult, you know, I'll say this and then I'll hush, but the term cult, it does carry a bit of stigma. It does. And that's something, you know, some people prefer not to use the term, the term cult, um, because, and, and there's part of me that honestly is like, you know, maybe we should reserve the word cult for things like the Branch Davidians. Um, you know, Waco is what is what people often refer to. Like maybe we should reserve the term cult for, like, you know, the Branch Davidian, the Branch Davidians, maybe we should reserve it for Waco or uh, for uh, uh, Nexium. Maybe we should reserve this for like, you know, Jonestown for those types of things. I mean, maybe that maybe there is like, but I, I liked what you said about like, you know, there's a spectrum. So like, we weren't out here. I was never in a group that was out here stockpiling weapons or where anybody was like branded or where, you know, we were uh, going to drink poison Kool-Aid or poison flavor aid is actually what it was, but we're not going to, you know, drink poison as an exit strategy. You know, we're not going to be like the heaven's gate uh, cult who we're going to, you know, believe that, uh, that we're going to all, you know, get transported on a, on a spaceship. Like it's not that, but these but but these groups and their beliefs were destructive to a lot of people's lives and yeah you, you know you meet people who you meet people from the United Pentecostal Church. You see people who are in the United Pentecostal Church. You see people who are part of the Furnace, or are part of the Charismatic Prayer Movement, or who are part of um, some of these other some of these other types of uh, things. And you might be able to be like, oh, that kind of sounds like you know maybe maybe you're in a cult. But a lot of times it's just like you know cults get regular people. And this will segue us into our into our next episode. So you have to stay tuned for the next episode where we talk about how like nobody nobody joins a cult nobody nobody signs up for this and says yeah hey i just want to you know be a part of something where people are restricting how i live and move and and have my being so anyway it's been a pleasure talking with you scott and listeners Absolutely. i i hope that this that you have gotten something out of this episode um talking about cults is hard um talking about it you know talking about frameworks and stuff can be can be difficult but i hope that you've gotten something out of this episode this like i said this was a grand experiment um i think it was a pretty good experiment i think that, that, um, yes. i'm not gonna 
I feel like that we I feel like that there's some bars up in here that that is gonna is gonna help somebody. But if you Absolutely. enjoyed this, um, you know, definitely don't rate us on this first episode because it's gonna get better. Um, it was like I said, it was it was good, but but you know, listen to a few episodes. Um, but have it there on, on your little podcast app. If you can, if you can rate, review, subscribe, that's an important thing. Subscribe, yes. I control podcast tell all your friends about it. We're not trying to recruit you into a cult. Like we don't want for this to become a cult. That would be really weird if the cult podcast became a cult. We're not trying to do that here. But yeah, tell people about it. If this benefits you, if you're somebody who you're maybe walking through cult recovery, you have a loved one um, who you're concerned that they might be in a cult. Maybe you're in um, some of the groups or groups that are similar to, you see similarities between um, the groups that we've mentioned here. Um, I hope that you will subscribe and that you will find uh, yourself in these stories and that it'll help you. So thank you so much. Peace. You've been listening to High Control. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. You can catch us on social media at High Control Pod. Check the show notes for resources and how to get in touch. Stay in control, friends.